Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real-Time Enterprise channel on Vantic TV, our video and podcast series of interviews with thought leaders and practitioners in digital transformation and the real-time enterprise. My name is Blaine Matthew, and I'm Chief Marketing and Product Officer at Vantic. Note that you can reach either myself or the guest by sending a note to realtime at vantic.com, and we will be more than happy to follow up. So we're going to do something a little different today. Vantic TV has often featured CIOs from large companies talking about digital transformation and related technologies, and also featured many consultants and gurus on similar topics. But today we will speak to an entrepreneur, someone who has successfully bootstrapped his own real-time business from scratch. We will learn about his journey and some great lessons for both startups and for larger companies that want to act more like a startup. So having said that, joining me today is Jordan Mayerson, co-founder and CEO of Hoplite Power. Prior to founding Hoplite Power, Jordan was an investment banker with Guggenheim Securities and Goldman Sachs. And he also has degrees in finance from the Wharton School and in computer science from the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for the time, Jordan. We had a great discussion uh, last week in prep for this and I'm excited to share it with others. Well, I'm glad to uh, be here and, uh, you know, hopefully what I have to say can help and be insightful to your viewers and, you know, just want to make this an entertainment, uh, entertaining conversation for everyone involved. Right. And uh, truly, we look like we're in startup land here. I see you're at a, a shared office space now that you're sharing with a bunch of other startups in, in New York City. Is that right? That is correct. We are based out of the New York Designs Incubator in Long Island City, which is you know, right outside of Manhattan. And its focus is hardware and design-based companies, um, which is you know, not the easiest thing to do in a city like New York, where everything is more advertising tech or fintech or software. Um, so we're you know, a small community of like-minded individuals who are building hardware-based products and, you know, actually physical products as opposed to just software. Um, so we have a lot of you know, electrical engineers here, mechanical, industrial design. We have uh, access to a shop upstairs. We built all of our products to date in our office. So it's a good, it's a good place for us. Really interesting. So that's great. So before I'll leave people in suspense a little bit to find out what Hoplite Power is specifically, but before we do that, uh, tell us a little bit about your story. Obviously, you started out in investment banking, and then somehow you joined a hardware and software startup or founded one. Sure. But, you know, take us back a little bit through your Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, it's, uh, I guess, a little less of the typical route into tech and, you know, engineering. But out of, out of school, as you mentioned earlier, I did have a I had both degrees in uh, computer science and business and coming out of school, I felt that the business route would be the best way to get into the business world, you know, kind of brush up on some basic you know, needed business skills, um, just kind of get my feet wet in the you know, so-called real world. Um, so, you know, having the background in finance, it made it very accessible to get onto Wall Street in New York, going into, you know, banking. Um, and, you know, after kind of, you know, I was three and a half years out of school, but I had also done a few internships at a few other financial institutions. Um, you know, just really felt that it was the 
it was a good time to take a risk if I ever were to take a risk. Um, you know, at 25, I have really no dependents, no real liabilities. Uh, you know, I don't have a family and kids that I would have to, you know, have balance with running a startup, which I hear plenty of people do. I can't understand or imagine how they do that uh, after seeing the problems and difficulties with just running a startup and being single. Um, but it's, um, it felt like it was the right time. Uh, I've always wanted to get back to something a bit more creative and tangible as opposed to, you know, doing a financial services type uh, role where, you know, I'm doing Excel spreadsheets on a daily basis, but I don't see any real connection to the, the product. And at the end of the day, I'm very attracted to solutions for problems. So as opposed to looking for, you know, building a technology that's going to looking for a problem to solve, the opportunity that we have here at Hoplite Power um, was something that plagues everyone who owns a smartphone um, and with poor battery life. And it's something like, hey, here's a problem that isn't being solved. Um, and maybe there's a better way to go about doing so. And, you know, let's put our money where our mouth is and actually try to leverage this um, and kind of exploit this opportunity. I would say my expectation was never to become you know, our essentially uh, lead software engineer, but, you know, push comes to shove, um, you know, always more interested on the business side, you know, being able to straddle the divides between both tech and business and being able to speak those languages. I mean, you hear a lot of horror stories of entrepreneurs being taken advantage of by VCs, by, you know, people that are in the kind of the investment world. They've never done a financial model. They don't know how to do accounting. Um, you know, a term sheet is foreign to them. And so, you know, I was going to leverage that background to basically have someone that speaks that language on the team. But, you know, lo and behold, we still have said person uh, being able to speak the language and also being able to do the um, software development, which I think overall, even though it was never my expectation, is a much more in interesting story. And, you know, is actually leading us to be very lean such that we don't need to spend extra resources on having a financial person and a marketing person and a software engineer. I mean, hopefully we'll get to the stage where that's, those are good problems to have and we will be expanding, but for, you know, in the bootstrap mode, um, you know, it's been definitely a much better story to tell potential investors, partners, um, other stakeholders that the product was developed in-house built by hand 100% um, by essentially two people. Hmm. And okay. So before we, so this is a great, a great place sure. to stop. Before we get into the story of the development of the solution, which is really interesting, just bring us all up to speed on what exactly is Hoplite Power? What is it and what problem does it solve? And, and sort of what is the business model of the company? I, I think that's a good idea, <laughs> you know, instead of keeping your viewers in suspense of what this company does, um, because we're not in stealth mode and we're happy to say what we do. Um, basically, Hoplite Power at its core is providing on-demand smartphone charging solution um, through a shared distribution model. And basically what that means is that we have engineered a network of kiosks um, on demand connected. They're about a, a foot and a half by a foot and a half to hang on a wall for our current product that we go install into a bar or restaurant. Uh, we have a pretty sizable network here in New York City. And basically it is a vending machine for batteries, uh, for smartphone chargers that you can rent on demand for any type of phone that you have. 
utilize the battery pack, charge your phone, you, and then like other sharing services, you can actually take it with you from place to place. So you're never, never really tethered to a physical location. And okay. especially, so you're not putting your phone in the machine. You're getting no. a battery out of the machine and, and connecting it to your phone, carrying it around for some amount of time, and then putting it back. So it's funky, funny that you mentioned that. That is the reason why we started the business, was that we saw these locker-based mechanisms, which is what most people are uh, used to. And when we tell them what we do, they're like, oh, is it a locker? You put your phone in it. We're like, no, that makes no sense to us. We want you to have your phone on you and you know, you can take the power with you as opposed to you putting your device into a locked box and then, you know, sitting there for 45 minutes waiting uh, for your phone to charge. And I mean, we've heard so many horror stories from companies that have, you know, partnered with these locker systems um, where the locker breaks down and then someone's phone is stuck inside. And is it the responsibility of the business or the service? So we're like, if if our thing doesn't work, the worst thing that happens is you just don't get a battery. You still have your phone. You, we automatically refund money. You know, there's nothing negative. There, I mean, unfortunately, it's not the best user experience, but you will still maintain your device and have your assets on you. So those lockers were the exact reason why we're doing this mobility type of solution where, you know, within 20 seconds in the swipe of a credit card, you have a fully charged battery pack fits right behind your phone, put it in your pocket, and you're, you know, walking down the street. Hmm. And how many battery packs does a machine hold? How many customers can you serve at once? So currently our, our Gen 1 machines are um, 15 battery packs uh, at a time. And because we leverage real-time data, a real-time data solution in Vantech actually as our backend, um, we are able to maintain very high level of supply without having to have a large, um, you know, in market stock. So we could have had a machine with 45 batteries in it and then just kind of let it run. But we really prioritize having a very small footprint machine so we can get into these businesses. And then we just monitor the levels as we, you know, as they kind of um, occur uh, transactions wise. And if a machine needs to be refilled or serviced, we know that before any of our operate our operating partners uh, would. However, um, we're actually in the process, and it's very exciting for us, um, developing our next generation machine, which same exact concept, but much higher uh, capabilities from both a technical and other value-added services. I don't want to get too far in the weeds with that, but that one's going to have a capacity of um, 48 and not much larger footprint. So we're really excited with that. We've come up with a very novel internal system. Um, that is allowing us to maximize, you know, battery space without, with minimizing footprint. And that's what we're hopefully going to be rolling out within the next, you know, don't want to put any time, you know, timeframes in stone. So let's say six to 12 months. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. And is it a simple pay-per-use model or do you subscribe to the system or how does that work? Hey, a subscription model would be fantastic. We're not <laughs> there yet, but that would be something that we would be very, uh, you know, interested in if the market um, you know, kind of avails itself to that type of model. So as of now, it is a pay-per-use um, system. You rent a battery, you pay a rental fee, you use the battery, you return it. Pretty simple. Yeah. We're not doing metered um, pricing where if you use it for 20 minutes, it's X right. price. If you use it for 45 minutes, it's Y price. If you want it for 30 minutes, it's $2.99. If you want it for you know, 22 hours, it's right. 2.99. Right. Um, right. You know, we want to give the customer the 
you know, the choice on how they want to charge their phone. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so thank you. I think everybody's got a pretty good idea about how this works. Great. So tell us the story about how this, how this came to be. So you already said how you got the idea, you, you saw the pain in the market. Obviously, everybody's cell phones are continually dying and it's an, on, it's an ongoing problem. I see no indication it's going to go away anytime soon. The standard kiosk model where you plug your phone in and leave it attached to a unit is, you know, that's uh, not, not optimal. Let's just yeah. say to be, to be gentle. So you saw this pain in the market and what, what did you do? How did you decide to begin to tackle it? Yeah. So, I mean, and, um, you know, this kind of goes along with the general kind of, I guess, concept of how would you potentially do it differently, but because everything in hindsight is very easy to discuss. Yeah. Um, but basically when we first started the business and we raised some, in, you know, internal capital and some friends and family capital, we were very naive. We were like, we need to build a prototype. Um, we need to show some initial, you know, customer interest. And, you know, if we have those, let's go raise some money. Um, so we actually built a, let's call it a version zero uh, prototype that actually is an ugly box that I wish I could throw off a bridge, but I can't. Um, but it's going it, to be in the museum someday in the, you know, in the Hoplite Power Museum. So it's better than it, better than what it currently is because it's a glorified storage unit or <laughs> some boxes on top of. But we hired some, you know, uh, consultants, some, you know, engineering contractors to actually build this out. Um, at that time, I was not part of the technical development whatsoever um, and was more so focusing on, you know, the business development, you know, more of the things that I thought I'd be working on. But after getting, you know, I'll put it lightly, our getting a good lesson from some early angel investors and, you know, hearing that we were just so far off from where we would need to be um, in order to actually raise some significant capital in terms of traction, we went back to the drawing board and was like, okay, the ultimate idea would be to have a system that would share these batteries, but would also be able to recharge the batteries automatically once they're returned. So our version zero prototype did that, not very well, and it would have, to get it to market now that I know much more about manufacturing and DFM and actually getting hardware built, yeah, it would have never, it would have never gone anywhere. Um, however, it did get us into this space in NY Designs, um, you know, the hardware incubator where we're at, and we kind of, you know, asked ourselves, what features do, you know, we care about as a company that consumers probably don't really care about. And we've decided that the ability to self-charge or the machines to recharge the batteries automatically was something that was a nice to have, but less so a need to have for proving the market of will people pay a nominal fee for an on-demand charge because yeah. an autonomous kiosk, because that's what we were saying. Um, and so we redesigned a system, which is our, current system, which is in market, which is more so a more of a traditional vending machine where there's a queue of batteries on the inside of the machine, a simple coil mechanism. And you, when you, you know, go to rent a battery, the coil spins and drops out a battery and then, you know, you can use it. And so we, after kind of pivoting away from going full hundred percent to the idea of having a fully autonomous self-charging kiosk, we designed our current product. Um, it basically took us from January of 2016 where the initial designs were on a physical piece of paper 
to December of the same year where we actually installed our first machines. So in, we bootstrapped hardware into market in less than a year, um, which also includes the, uh, the software aspect because they're being connected kiosks. There's a UI on the machine. We have a 14 inch touch screen. So, you know, that is very interactive and that's how the consumer actually utilizes our machine and selects the different options is on the touch screen. So we had to, and to provide the ability to go from place to place, it all needs to be connected to a centralized, you know, hub of, of data. And so, you know, we were given my, that my partner was more so on the hardware side. I was focusing more so on the electrical and software side. Um, it was, you know, through this process where I was like, okay, going to have to get my hands a little bit dirtier, dirtier on the engineering. Um, I mean, at this, I actually, throughout the process, taught myself some basic electrical engineering, uh, enough to design and build the uh, circuit board um, that's powering our machines. I uh, have no real electrical engineering experience, um, but it was kind of a, how do we get this done? We can do, we have to do it internally. We can't hire anyone to do it. And how can we, you know, show that we are still very strongly supportive of this thesis that people will pay for this. Um, now, tell, the, tell the story of the 75 page schematic. I don't know if you were just about to get to that. <laughs> that was, a, that's a quite a inspiring yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So during that process of, you know, getting our current system up, we were working with a consultancy, an engineering consultancy firm that was, you know, marketing uh, towards startups um, where, and our idea was, okay, we have the hardware kind of focused, um, uh, and designed the, the internal mechanisms, the electrical schematics, everything, you know, the, the physical design of the machine itself. We kind of were like, okay, we're good with that. We'll maintain that. What we really need help with and what we don't have the capabilities on our team right now, and we're not going to be able to go hire someone is building a network infrastructure for on-demand real-time transactions, mm -hmm. um, which was the whole you know, was a necessity to actually run this business. Like the nervous and, system of the, of the system. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. hundred percent. Um, and so we engaged this company and, you know, with the expectation that they would be able to provide us with an MVP, you know, minimum viable product type backend. So a few basic APIs that we could integrate into our, you know, the machines, uh, programming, um, so that they communicate and we would have a, you know, kind of a pilot ready product that we could then put into market, start showing traction, start generating revenue, you know, actually generating the data to show like, hey, people will pay for this. Um, unfortunately, there was a bit of miscommunication along the way. And instead of getting an MVP backend and uh, API, I guess, library, they uh, provided us with a very comprehensive 75 page PDF of if they were to build a backend and APIs, this is how they would do it. And so I'm going to, you know, kind of fast forward through some of like the negotiation and some of the, uh, you know, oh, maybe our company's going to die because of this conversation. But lo and behold, we came to a very creative solution in that they at the time were partnering with a company called Vantic, which, you know, was uh, marketed to us as a IOT automation platform and that they thought that what we needed to have done, we could build on top of Vantix platform, um, assuming that we got a little bit of tr you know, training and got up to speed on how the you know, 
the, the platform works and how to develop on top of it. And they were right. <laughs> I mean, um, so when you say we could build it with Vantic, you don't mean that company that wrote the 75 pages. No, 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 no. They're Sorry. basically saying here, yes. Vantic's fairly easy to learn. You go ahead and do it yourself. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah. And at that point, I mean, while it's not the ideal outcome, um, and, you know, we were hoping that they were going to be actually working in, you know, kind of parallel that they would be building this and we can focus on like everything on the machine side, you know, software and hardware. We then, you know, realized that, oh, okay, you know, in addition to the hardware and the soft and the software on the machine, we now have to build the entire back end and the whole networking infrastructure. Um, but you know, uh, in August of 2016 was when we got introduced to Vantic and kind of, you know, went through a tutorial, few tutorials and intro and training session. The end of December, like I said earlier, we had product and market. Um, and we had a full backend API library um, that I, you know, single-handedly developed in about a three and a half month span, was able to integrate it into our front end and our, because we were running uh, on our current machines, a Java-based web app. Um, I was confident enough to program in Java. So I was like, you know what? If I can get the two talking to one another, um, you know, maybe we have something here. And now it's mm -hmm. been a year and almost a year, over a year and a half later, we're still using the same exact backend. We've as we add more machines, it's at a click of a button, new machine comes online, new machine is then added to our system. Um, it's been inherently scalable. We don't have to look to deploy or, you know, redeploy new servers or expand our, uh, you know, cloud systems, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and so it's been allowed, it allows us to actually increase and scale the network in real time because we can easily add and uh, onboard any machine in about, oh, I would say five to 10 minutes. Um, mm. And so, I mean, we've ma definitely made improvements over time. And, yeah. uh, you know, we see some initial errors that, you know, weren't necessarily debugged, but given the fact that I can go onto a web portal, change the uh, API and then save it uh, and fix any error pretty much in real time, right. it just made it very simple, or <laughs> I won't say simple, it made it a lot easier to actually roll this out because I know a lot of startups um, are very, especially ones where software isn't necessarily their core focus or it's a complementary aspect of it, will go and outsource the development. And while that may, you know, get you a product very quickly and very good looking um, without having the technical capabilities on staff and in-house to make any changes is, you know, kind of cumbersome, um, could be costly, could be outside the scope of an initial project, who then maintains it going forward, who maintains ownership, something goes wrong. I've, I can't tell you how many times in the middle of the night I've woken up, seen an error on the system, logged onto my computer, fixed the API, and then went back to sleep. And it's like, okay, it's fixed and not have to sweat more, you know, like, oh, are my developers in, you know, Bangalore going to answer the phone or, you know, hopefully I can get in touch with this developer, yada, yada, yada. It's, you know, we're, uh, you know, self-determination type of startup where we're not looking, we're trying to minimize, you know, having any technology that's really developed or, you know, built by somebody else that such that we don't know yeah. how to modify moving forward. Um, so that was a, um, huge benefit that at the time kind of, you know, didn't 
dawn on us um, right. until we were actually operating a you know multi-machine system every yeah. 24/7 essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I mean, at this point, we've had thousands of paid rentals. You know, thousands of unique customers, multiple users, very positive feedback from our partner locations. And, you know, it was all based on the idea that, hey, people will pay for a charge if they need it, you know, yeah. people pay for convenience. And we built these machines, we tested them, we go into a business and literally put it on the wall, walk away. And within a few hours, we usually have our first rental because it's intuitive, people can figure it out. Um, and it's, you know, very, um, you know, rewarding to see utilization in real time. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can go onto a portal and be like, there was a rental, there was a rental. Yeah. This guy rented it for the fourth time. Um, you know, yeah. and seeing that come in, you know, on a, you know, pretty much instantaneous basis from any machine in our network. Now, when you release your next gen product, will you have to redo the back end from scratch or will, will you be able to reuse a lot of what you already created? How, how difficult do you anticipate that will be? Uh, so we, I have already, um, it's not gonna be too difficult in that it's already primarily been built. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been spending a lot of time behind the scenes getting the next version up and running. I would say that it's basically 75% of our current um, system right. and, and having the current system made it very easy to, you know, uh, quickly develop the next kind of uh, iteration. Mm -hmm. And because we have the ability to bifurcate our, you know, data between, you know, kind of a platform one and platform two, all on the same, you know, uh, tech background, yeah. we can, you know, keep them completely separate, actually run both networks at the exact same time. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that we learned from the first round of development, we leveraged for the second round, but due to more of the technical comp uh, complexity of the new machine, the ability to self recharge, um, larger capacity, that there was a lot more data that we needed to keep track of. And, you know, the APIs were a li little bit more robust and lengthy in terms of its um, development, but we made a concerted effort to kind of, because we know how the old machines ran and know how the new machines are gonna, you know, how they differ, we actually pre, you know, basically say pre-built the back end, and now we're actually going through the process of developing the UI and the application right. for the next machine and, you know, leveraging uh, the, the new kind of platform as we speak. Um, hmm. And I think that, I th we'll put it to you this way. The first development cycle probably took me about three months, um, you know, learning the system, getting stuff developed, you know, that was to, you know, like a initial rollout. And then there was a lot of, you know, debugging yeah. along the way. The second backend, I think I did in about, in the APIs and, you know, databases, I specified probably in about a two and a half week sprint. Wow. Um, because I know what I needed. I knew what I needed to change. And then, you know, the nice thing is with the, um, you know, the platforms that we're using is that we have a, you know, we're building it all on a dev platform. And yeah. so I can test everything and debug in, in real time as well. So it's not like, let me run this. And then, oh, I have to wait until we actually have a network up to debug this. I yeah. can simulate data and start seeing how these things work, where they break, what needs to be changed. And we're already going through that process. So hopefully, I mean, we're probably within the next month, 
hopefully going to have a fully working demo prototype of our next machine hmm. with all the bells and whistles fully, um, you know, functional yeah. uh, batteries, take payment, all that. Um, we are you know, working with a few manufacturing partners and uh, yeah. engineering consultants to, you know, help get it manufactured. Um, but we're in the process of get tying all those bits and pieces together on a, you know, fully workable next version. Very cool. And it sounds like you do intend to run the V1 system and the next gen system at the same time, at least for some time. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, we, it's, you know, what's, what's bad about passive revenue? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the machines run, they still function perfectly well. Um, people use them on a daily basis. We see that utilization. And until we were in a position to roll out our next version of the machines into this same market, there's no reason to um, remove them. Additionally, yeah. for our next machine, we're going after us, you know, we're kind of moving slightly away from the bar restaurant market and targeting larger um, venues, amusement parks, uh, sports stadiums, where there's a lot of people, a lot of foot traffic, people are there for to be entertained. The last thing they want to do is being tethered up in the, you know, yeah. concession somewhere. So given that we're focusing on a different kind of location network, um, they're not going to, for, for the near future, there's not going to be a lot of potential, uh, I don't want to say cross-contamination, but they're going to operate in kind of different spheres yep. of hopefully, you know, eventually we'll get to the point where we can phase out the gen ones and, you know, bring in the, the new, the newer system um, because it's going to be actually professionally manufactured, not in our office. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, for the time being, you know, as, until the next one is actually up and running, um, there's no reason to yeah. remove that. We're actually looking right. to expand. Uh, we yeah. have a few machines ready to go in our office that can, that need nice homes. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we're looking to expand a few more of the, on the current network, and then we're just going to let them, let them ride. Well, it's really exciting to hear the story, you know, of uh, obviously the, the hardware development is really interesting. And uh, I know a lot of the folks that listen to this podcast are probably more, more on the software side, but it's always interesting, as you said, to hear the hardware side. On the software side, it's also interesting that you could move so quickly and basically take what you've got in Gen 1, almost build a digital twin of, of Gen 2, run it, run it in simulation, make sure it all works. And then when you're ready to go live, you can bring that live in real time and keep Gen 1 running. Yep. Uh, and, and with, you know, in, in not uh, years of, of work with a team of developers, but weeks of work with you. You know, yeah, pretty much amazing. Not that um, you don't look like a really smart guy. I'm sure you are, but that, that is still pretty impressive. You well, know? I, 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 I am working very uh, um, well with an, with a few interns that are, you know, being, that are key to this development. Uh, the interns now. Yes. The, good for you. Divide and conquer. You know, they'll be working on X, Y, Z. I'll be doing ABC and then we integrate and then it works. And then it's right. like, great. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, actually, the funny thing is, from our first machine to our second machine, the only consistent tech stack aspect is Vantage hmm. uh, and is the back end, because we're going from a Java-based web app um, to a Python-based web app. And the firmware that we've built for our new machine and all the other modules we're communicating over TCP IP as opposed to serial. So it's actually a 
a, a different tech stack, but actually, but, and also the way that we're integrating our APIs, we're going from like a, a Java SDK, which makes it, you know, very easy to integrate to, you know, straight HTTP REST calls. So we're actually, you know, going as a, you know, more traditional API calling protocol. And, you know, once we kind of figured out the, how to best communicate with our backend via REST, it's like, okay, you know, Python to Java or Java to Python, no big deal. Um, we have to modify how it's being called. But once we figured that out, it's now just like off to the races. So, um, you know, the system to the user is going to be exactly the same, more or less from a you know, high level perspective. Right, right. Um, but the underlying uh, tech is a, you know, different languages, different, you know, modules, different payment uh, software and different payment hardware. Um, it's a completely, you know, it's a really separate system, but because we know how the backend works and how that integrates and how that data, you know, is communicated and, and stored, we're not sweating having to build a backend. So we can focus yeah. solely on, you know, the new application and any of the nuances that arise from, you know, developing with a newer tech stack. Um, because we know that when we, you know, start to integrate the backend, it's going to work as expected. And, you know, yeah. I started doing that this week and it's working as expected, which is great. Glad to hear it. Well, that's, that's great. So maybe I'll combine the next two questions into one, but sure. what was the hardest part of getting your company this far? And maybe it's related to if you could do it all over again, uh, what would you do differently? Maybe so, those are the same. Maybe those are different questions, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, probably, I mean, the hardest thing, and it was, you know, kind of an uphill battle based on more so the type of business that we chose to pursue is, you know, there's an adage in the end in like the hardware space that hardware is hard. And it's true because, you know, not only do you have the capital costs required for research and development and actually building physical product plus building out a team, most investors are kind of used to a software based return curve where you can put in a little bit of money, you know, upfront and, you know, you have a, you bring on a few people, you launch some servers and Hey, if you go from, you know, a hundred users to a hundred million, you just need to kind of, you know, glossing over a lot, but it's, it's a lot easier to scale a software business and the, the invest, the investment, uh, community, at least in New York, is still very used to that type of risk profile and that kind of use of capital. So when we go to places and say, hey, we need this type of money to build machines because the machines cost $2,000, $3,000 to build, they turn around and it's like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. And we're like, do you know how much a real vending machine costs? Like, that's probably like $30,000. Like, and I'm just saying too. Um, so it's been, a, so, you know, probably the hardest thing has been you know, getting a product in is, you know, the bootstrapping aspect is getting product into market where we have good feedback from customers that they want to use it. We have um, feedback from, you know, businesses that they like this problem to be solved. We, and then when we go to, you know, try to raise a bit more capital to, you know, uh, expand the, to initially launch the business, it was, you know, a, it was kind of a, Oh, show us, we want to see more traction and, Mm -hmm. and, and growth. And we're like, how do we show traction if we can't build product to put into market to show the traction that you want to see? So the question for us was how do we get into market bootstrapped with very limited investment while having all the features or more or less most of the features that we want to 
be able to provide or market ourselves. Um, so, yeah. you know, I think that's where, you know, that kind of came, the, me becoming more of a engineer kind of came out of that was we need to get this to market. I have a software background. I haven't, I hadn't touched Java in probably five years. And now that we're doing Python, I hadn't touched, I haven't touched that in about eight uh, since school, but it's kind of like riding a bike to an extent and, you know, just pick it up and like, you know, learn it and yeah. back to the development. So I think and what's, that, and what's one thing you would do differently. First thing I would do, diff I would have said uh, the bloody hell to uh, prototype zero. Um, you know, basically, the mo realizing now is that the most important thing is, you know, speed to market with as analogous of a final product as possible. So when we cut out the capability of doing self-charging, um, that allowed us to really move quickly because we didn't have to design our own battery pack. We could we white labeled and sourced directly from manufacturers overseas. We didn't have to you know figure out you know complex charging protocols and you know battery management and power issues there. It's you know very simple system. And if you look inside one of our kiosks, it's a very you know it's a pretty simple system to be honest with you. Um, and it's really more or less the distribution that is the is the value add. It's you know their battery packs. You know, we're not, we're not yeah. really creating new tech here. It's the access and the convenience that we're providing and the reassure the, you know, the reassuring thoughts that, you know, come with, Hey, my phone dies. I can easily get something to call an Uber home or, you know, to text my friend that I'm okay. Because, you know, we have a tendency to forget that without the hardware, without the phone, all the really cool stuff that our phones do would be useless. Yeah. Um, and so that would be the, you know, if, if I were to kind of do it again, um, yeah, it'd be, how do I get quicker to market and focus less on proving and building out the full tech prototype? Because we could have easily jumped to our current machine without much right. loss um, and could have done a lot quicker because we built it in-house. We didn't hire contractors to do it. Um, you know, like when we controlled our own destiny and we ended up building, you know, my, my partner, Nick, and I, we end up building a much more robust professional product than the engineering consultants we hired to do the first one hmm. in the first place. So, you know, kind of the need for expertise. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people this day and age are really like, oh, if someone else can do it, let me hire them or let me, it's like, you know what, if you're an entrepreneur, you better be able to kind of leverage your own skill set other than, you know, being a business person or, you know, finance guy, if you're not doing some of the development yourself or a key member, I just, it doesn't seem like you're as much, there's much of like the connection to being an entrepreneur that you're really putting in the time and effort. So, I mean, I don't want to, you know, bash anybody else's, you know, strategies or whatnot. But for us, we always were very keen on keeping the tech in house, being able to say, hey, we developed this. We're not leveraging, a, you know, relying on other software providers or other, you know, companies to do this for us. We're doing it essentially ourselves. Um, and it's, you know, worked, worked pretty well today. Very cool. All right. Changing gears entirely. I sure. always give uh, guests the chance to uh, call bullshit on <laughs> aspect of uh, maybe where the gurus are saying sure. uh, business or tech gurus are saying X, you think it's actually Y what, uh, what's your call BS uh, moment here? So I think this also, 
you know, coming from the finance side of things, I kind of understand that world and I know people in it. I know how capital's put to use. I mean, I was, when I was in my banking days, I was working on, you know, billion dollar transactions and whatnot. So I speak the language. I, it's not something that is, you know, over my head. VCs need to stop marketing themselves as, oh, we invest in, you know, the team or we invest in any stage because every guy that I've gone to that says that is, oh no, you're too early. Then how can you be any stage if we're always too early or it's, you know, not the right, it's like, you know, ever, if you, if you, if you were to do an analysis of, you know, multiple VC kind of copyrights, it's all the same, like regurgitated script. Um, I have a bunch of friends in VC, so like, it's not like I don't have people in this, you know, in this community. You had, you had a bunch of friends. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes. Um, but it's more so, I wish there was just a bit more of a, and you know, this will never happen because you know, it just won't, but like, uh, hey, we invest in X, Y, and Z, and there are a few that do that, X, Y, and Z companies at this stage or later. If you don't meet those qualifications, don't talk to us. Or like, you know, we, we wish you the best of luck, but you know, that's not our profile. It's the ones that like say, oh, we invest in teams, not ideas. We invest in, you know, understood, blah, 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 blah. It's like, eh, you know what? You just, you didn't have anything better to write on your website. All right. Wow. That sounds very visceral to you. <laughs> we'll, let you we'll let you back down off that one a little bit. And, and to wrap it up, uh, take us through, and you've already touched on so many of them, but a couple of key takeaways or tips for entrepreneurs or business people that are trying to drive, you know, some innovation, a real-time transformation in the, in the world of business in a market. Sure. What, uh, what tips do you have? Sure. I would say, you know, um, it, it's a dual-edged sword because there's a lot of baloney out there. Don't get me wrong. So you're going to have to do your homework. But before, you know, really trying to, you know, leverage um well i guess it's two, it's 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 two things on the t let me bifurcate between tech side and uh business side on the tech side i would say look to see if there's some other solutions out there that you can leverage that would help you get to market faster because if getting to market fast is the ultimate goal improving your you know product uh whether it be hardware or software then you need to get something built most of your early adopters are not going to be looking under the hood of what you have built. So if you can leverage other technologies or platforms, um, you know, for us example, we didn't want to build a API and database platform from scratch. Those exist. Why not leverage one that's already, you know, debugged and, you know, uh, a lot better than what we could ever build internally. So that's one other area that we can kind of de-risk. And then we can focus on the things that, um, or focus on the things that, you, you know, you have to develop. Right. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, on the one hand, look for, you know, spend some time trying to figure out what can be leveraged off the shelf or if there's certain things that, you know, would require some still development, but not full from the ground up. Um, and, and, you know, two, I'm never a fan of, you know, outsourcing tech, especially if you're looking to do a tech product. Um, you can't really say you're a tech startup if you're, you know, outsourcing everything, but you're more of just, you know, a business or, you know, like there are plenty of businesses that operate like that and it's great. Um, but it's, I don't want, you know, people to kind of get, you know, caught up in the fact that, oh, well, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm not really doing anything. Um, on the second side, so on more of the business side, don't waste your money on any, uh, on, you know, efficiency tools until you really need to use them. 
Um, there's a lot of tools out there for communicating, for accounting, for, uh, for uh, collaboration, for time management, for pretty much anything that a business does. And, you know, a lot of people are very quick to pay for you know, all things convenience, which is what I market our company as. But, you know, as an entrepreneur just starting up, you know, you, it, it's not easy. You got to put in the sweat equity. So, you know, don't be paying for a CRM until like your Excel spreadsheet of customers and clients exceeds, you know, your ability to function um, and you need the CRM. One thing that I would recommend spending money on is a good accounting uh, software. I mean, I'm using QuickBooks and, you know, I keep track of all of our finances, but I do have a background in finance. So it's hard for me to kind of separate those two, but you know, there's like, there's money will go by very, very, very quickly. So spend every dollar wisely, more or less. So if there's certain things that, you know, there are less sexy tools, like you have to use Excel over some cool newfangled product, use Excel. Don't go out and pay for all these expensive things so it looks nicer. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, you're trying to get the product out and the product is going to hopefully speak more than the fancy, uh, you know, CRM templates yeah. you develop. Yeah. Well, and I think that advice applies not only to startups, but to larger organizations. Their agility gets uh, reduced. They get bogged down in all the tools, all the resources, everything that they could do. Yep. They could launch this new product and integrate the system into SAP in six months, or they could just get it out there, right? Right. And, and keep it simple. And right. More MVP oriented, more agile, you know, and, uh, and develop things rapidly. And so I think your, your advice absolutely applies to large organizations. As well. Yeah. I mean, like, and we got to a point, you know, I'm just using our, my company as a, an example where we were spending more time talking about the tools and figuring out how to use the tools than just doing the work and, you know, doing what our business is. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are definitely certain things that make life a lot easier. Um, you know, we use communication, which makes it great. You know, we use Dropbox, great. Uh, Google Docs, great, you know, basic stuff. But you know, if you're getting into these crazy task trackers and you're a team of four people, like if you can't communicate with your team and know what people are doing, like you probably have bigger problems than, you know, having to use a task tracker, you know, that type of stuff. So, you know, there, it's a, it's a, you know, there's definitely goods, there's definitely bad I would definitely say try not to spend all your time assessing tools. And if you find one that you like, just go with it because the next one out there is probably not going to be materially that much better. <laughs> That's good advice. Well, that wraps it. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyable conversation. Appreciate it. No, this was fantastic. And uh, it was a, a great opportunity to re-engage and, you know, talk to you guys again and, uh, you know, hope to talk to you guys soon. Absolutely. And for those interested in hearing more about Hoplite Power, uh, check out hoplitepower.com. That's H-O-P-L-I-T-E power.com. And if you are in the New York City area, keep your eyes open for one of the kiosks. Hopefully a, next, a Gen 2 kiosk in the not too distant future. Hopefully. That's what we'd all, we'd all be uh, happy about that. You bet. And of course, you can reach out to me anytime at realtimeadvantic.com. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast version of The Real-Time Enterprise, search for The Real-Time Enterprise on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you are already listening to the podcast version of The Real-Time Enterprise, please leave a rating or comment and let us know how you are enjoying the show.